I've just returned from a visit to my landlord and the solitary neighbour that I shall be troubled with. This is certainly a beautiful country. In all England, I do not believe that I could have fixed on a situation so completely removed from the stir of society, a perfect misanthropist's heaven. And Mr. Heathcliff and I are such a suitable pair to divide the desolation between us. A capital fellow. He little imagined how my heart warmed towards him when I beheld his black eyes withdraw so suspiciously under their brows as I rode up, and when his fingers sheltered themselves with a jealous resolution still further in his waistcoat as I announced my name. Mr. Heathcliff, I said. A nod was the answer. Mr. Lockwood, your new tenant, sir. I do myself the honour of calling as soon as possible after my arrival to express the hope that I've not inconvenienced you by my perseverance in soliciting the occupation of Thrushcross Grange. I heard yesterday you had had some thoughts. Thrushcross Grange is my own, sir, he interrupted, wincing. I should not allow anyone to inconvenience me if I could hinder it. Walk in. The walk in was uttered with closed teeth and expressed the sentiment, go to the deuce. Even the gate over which he leant manifested no sympathising movement to the words, and I think that circumstance determined me to accept the invitation. I felt interested in a man who seemed more exaggeratedly reserved than myself. When he saw my horse's breast fairly pushing the barrier, he did pull out his hand to unchain it, and then sullenly preceded me up the causeway, calling as we entered the court, "'Joseph, take Mr. Lockwood's horse.' and bring up some wine. Here we have the whole establishment of domestics, I suppose, was the reflection suggested by this compound order. No wonder the grass grows up between the flags and cattle are the only hedge-cutters. Joseph was an elderly, nay, an old man, very old, perhaps, though hale and sinewy. The Lord help us, he soliloquised in an undertone of peevish displeasure while relieving me of my horse looking meantime in my face so sourly that I charitably conjectured he must have need of divine aid to digest his dinner, and his pious ejaculation had no reference to my unexpected advent. Wuthering Heights is the name of Mr. Heathcliff's dwelling, Wuthering being a significant provincial adjective descriptive of the atmospheric tumult to which its station is exposed in stormy weather, Pure, bracing ventilation they must have up there at all times, indeed. One may guess the power of the north wind blowing over the edge by the excessive slant of a few stunted firs at the end of the house, and by a range of gaunt thorns, all stretching their limbs one way as if craving arms of the sun. Happily, the architect had foresight to build it strong. The narrow windows are deeply set in the wall, and the corners defended with large, jutting stones. Before passing the threshold, I paused to admire a quantity of grotesque carving lavished over the front, and especially about the principal door, above which, among a wilderness of crumbling griffins and shameless little boys, I detected the date 1500 and the name Hareton Earnshaw. I would have made a few comments and requested a short history of the place from the surly owner, but his attitude at the door appeared to demand my speedy entrance or complete departure— and I had no desire to aggravate his impatience previous to inspecting the penetralium. One step brought us into the family sitting-room, without any introductory lobby or passage. They call it here the house, preeminently. It includes kitchen and parlour generally, 
but I believe at Wuthering Heights the kitchen is forced to retreat altogether into another quarter. At least I distinguished a chatter of tongues and a clatter of culinary utensils deep within, and I observed no signs of roasting, boiling, or baking about the huge fireplace, nor any glitter of copper saucepans and tin colanders on the walls. One end, indeed, reflected splendidly both light and heat from ranks of immense pewter dishes, interspersed with silver jugs and tankards, towering row after row on a vast oak dresser to the very roof. The latter had never been underdrawn. Its entire anatomy lay bare to an inquiring eye, except where a frame of wood laden with oat cakes and clusters of legs of beef, mutton, and ham concealed it. Above the chimney were sundry villainous old guns and a couple of horse pistols, and by way of ornament, three gaudily painted canisters disposed along its ledge. The floor was of smooth white stone, the chairs, high-backed primitive structures painted green, one or two heavy black ones lurking in the shade. In an arch under the dresser reposed a huge liver-coloured bitch pointer, surrounded by a swarm of squealing puppies, and other dogs haunted other recesses.